There once was a church who had been founded by a charismatic pastor named Paul. This guy said things in a way that no one had ever heard before, and yet things that they had always known deep down. After Paul left this town, there was another pastor that came into town named Apollos. Apollos was also a gifted and talented pastor. A lot of people were baptized under his leadership. And he took what Paul had done and he went deeper. Many people came to faith. They learned more about the Bible, about Jesus, about what it meant to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Everything had been great. And yet they started to pick sides. I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, well, I'm with Jesus. (laughs) Paul heard about the argument and he wrote to the church in Corinth and Anne is going to read his response for us. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And each will, oh, he he, who waters, I'm going to say this again, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, You are God's field, God's building. Another Richard Rohr quote for the morning. God is always bigger than the boxes we build for God. So we should not waste too much time protecting the boxes. (laughs) Yesterday I was asked by a sixth grader, What's the difference between Presbyterians and Baptists, the church that she is in? And I found myself saying, you know, well, there was the Catholic Church, and then there was this guy named Martin Luther who didn't agree with the Catholic Church, and they didn't agree with him, so they kicked him out. 
And there was this other gay, guy named John Calvin. He was kind of saying the same thing as Martin Luther, but he lived in France. Martin Luther lived in Germany. And uh, he, they disagreed, but they kind of said the same thing at the same time. Then there was another guy named John Knox who moved to Scotland, who took John Calvin's ideas there. And then some of those people took their ideas to the U.S. and, and you know, they influenced the government and... And, you know, that's how we became Presbyterian. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you could kind of see her eyes glazing over, maybe as yours did as I was telling the story. <laughs> um, and it just begs this question, like, how, sh how should I have answered her question? I was a little afraid to get into things like, you know, why women are pastors in my church and not in your church, and, and how we see salvation and why we baptize children and not adults. That seemed a little... Um, difficult to talk about, and yet there is this question of how do we define our faith? How do we define our identity as people of faith? And it is so tempting and to take sides, and indeed the story of religion can be told by the story of taking sides. We get over-attached to certain personalities, to certain ideas. We allow faith to be about what side we're on or about being right. Religion is just ripe with the possibility of these kinds of ideas and this kind of thinking. And in some ways, it's appropriate. We all need uh, hands to hold as we're growing. We could many of us name the pastor or the church or the mentor or the school or the class we took that really helped us go deeper in our faith, it helped us find a sense of grounding in our faith. And yet all of those places and people are just arrows, as Paul says, pointing to a larger reality, not the reality themselves. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This month um, of February, we're looking at the Bible, and it's kind of this odd approach of, of looking at how we think about the Bible and then also using some of the passages from the Bible to consider how they might inform how we look at the Bible. It's some kind of weird meta conversation we've had and probably not the best academic process, but it is what we're, we're doing this, uh, this month, and there's other ways to look at it. But I remember in one of my very first sermons that I preached, maybe 15 years ago, holding up this book and saying, this is the answer book, this is the guide. But I'm not sure I actually think that way anymore about the Bible. One of the biggest mistakes we've made in the last hundred years or so is, is beginning to use this word biblical. As if when we say there is a biblical view of something, it's set in stone and you can't argue with it. We see this in politics all the time, right? I mean, because uh, as much as we're supposed to be separated, faith um, and government are so intertwined in America, and so you'll hear a politician saying, this is the biblical view of such and such. And you think, well, I don't know if that's the biblical view of it, and if it is, I'm not sure if I really want to read the Bible because I don't agree with that view. So, for instance, like, what is a biblical marriage? Well, 
Uh, depends. I mean, are you going to go back to Abraham deciding that he should take in his wife's handmaiden since his wife was not able to produce children? Is, is that a good example of a biblical marriage? Or maybe Jacob with his two wives? Or David finding a way to murder the husband of the woman that he was interested in? There are lots of biblical examples of marriage that we may not want to emulate. (laughs) Or this notion of, of having a Christian country. Well, do you mean a nation that follows Jesus by selling everything we have and giving it to the poor? Or do we refuse to fight back when we are attacked? Or maybe like ancient Israel, whenever we conquer a country, we enact genocide? Is that a biblical nation? So there is really rarely one answer to what is biblical. And we pick and we choose often how we want to read this. Uh, For some things we're going to take, some people say, you know, I'm a literalist. But they are still picking what they get to be literal about, right? And so there is this kind of flow and um, what a recent biblical scholar I was working with called the veil scale, where we are um, sometimes choosing to be literal and sometimes we're choosing to be metaphorical and we're kind of always sliding along that scale. And it's not to say that it's all metaphor or it's all literal, but we're all along that scale trying to make those decisions. And yet I think when we use the Bible to find the one and only right answer and we declare that something is biblical, we can end up like the church in Corinth picking Paul or Apollos or Jesus. We end up in a place that's honestly a little immature, that we're stuck taking sides, trying to prove we are right and others are wrong. And what if the Bible is not meant to give us all of the answers? What if it's meant mostly to be a tool through which we grow? As I was researching for the sermon this week, I discovered a book that, no joke, was actually released on Tuesday by biblical scholar Peter Enns, and this is the the title of it, How the Bible Actually Works in which I explain how an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers and why that's great news. I was like, wow, I could have, if only I discovered this earlier, but I love some of the chapter titles. (laughs) Really, I thought of it before I read the book. I I didn't have a chance to read the whole thing, but I did love the chapter titles. So here are the chapter titles. Oh, good, another book on the Bible. God is not a helicopter parent. (laughs) The Bible doesn't really tell us what to do, and that's a good thing. Screwing up your kids biblically. (laughs) I did read that chapter. It's pretty funny. (laughs) God's laws, evasive and fidgety little buggers. (laughs) Some details would be nice. Or, oh, Lord, maybe you didn't hear me. I want clarity. (laughs) And lastly, we're stuck being human. (laughs) This title for this book and its chapter headings kind of summed up on what I really wanted to say today. 
The Bible, in its ambiguity and its diversity and its complexity, invites us to wrestle in a way that leads us to maturity. The Bible often does not agree with itself. There are internal arguments and contradictions and some really crazy things that are happening in here. It's not an answer book, but it is an invitation, an invitation to growth, an invitation to wisdom, to discernment, to wrestle honestly, to find a way to live instead of a dogma to defend. Many of us have stopped reading the Bible because we think it will close us down or make us close-minded, but it's really meant to open us up. And this is what I think Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians as he's writing to them about their internal arguments about Apollos versus Paul, just as we can argue about what is biblical and what is not. If our faith is about being right or taking sides or competition, it's not the mature faith that Paul wants to see in the Corinthians or that we should be after as well. So I'd like to invite Anne to read the end of chapter 3 in which Paul concludes his thought. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. When we read this in the Sequoia's Bible study this week, Jerry wisely asked, what, is it, what does it mean to let go of everything if everything belongs to you? What does it mean to let go of everything if everything belongs to you? What a beautiful question. I have no idea what the answer is. <laughs> But I know that asking that question takes me deeper into faith and trust and hope. And maybe the Bible itself is a series of beautiful questions. Poet David White says this, the ability to ask beautiful questions, often in very unbeautiful moments, is one of the great disciplines of a human life. And a beautiful question starts to shape your identity as much by asking it as it does by having it answered. You just have to keep asking, and before you know it, you will find yourself actually shaping a different life, meeting different people, finding conversations that are leading you in those directions you wouldn't even have seen before.
staying rooted in the Bible forces us to keep having to ask beautiful questions, and in so doing, opening ourselves over and over to God to grow with the Spirit. Paul says to the Corinthians, the question is not whether you believe the right things or you are on the right side, but do you live as if you belong? Do you live as if it is all yours? And when you begin to live in belonging, you begin to grow. You're able to mature. You find the capacity to love everyone, to forgive, to let go of needing to be right in order to be in relationship. This is the invitation of faith, and this is the invitation of this book. May we say yes to that invitation. Amen.